Okay, well, welcome everyone. Um, Brother John Henry and I are very excited. This is a little strange. Um, but we're very excited um, to share a little bit about um, one of the newest saints um, in the Dominican order uh, with you this evening, St. Margaret of Castello. Uh, before we begin, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you uh, for bringing us together this evening. Um, thank you for the opportunity um, to share and reflect a little bit more um, on the life of your daughter and our Dominican sister, St. Margaret of Castello. We pray that you would help us uh, to grow in friendship with her, um, to get to know her, to be able to turn to her um, as a friend, um, ask for her intercession um, so that we may grow closer and deeper in friendship with you, Lord. We offer these intentions to you through the intercession of your mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Margaret of Castello, pray for us. All you holy Dominican men and women saints, pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, um, I'm going to turn the mic over to Brother John Henry to get us started. Uh, he's going to tell you a little bit about the life of St. Margaret of Costello. I keep almost saying blessed. She, until very recently, she was blessed Margaret of Costello, uh, but now she's been canonized. And you'll hear a little more about that this evening. So I'm going to turn it over first to Brother John Henry. Brother John Henry. Good evening, everyone. Thank you again for coming. Um, I hope you enjoy learning about Margaret of Castello as much as I do. Uh, I didn't know too much about her before preparing this talk, and uh, she's, she's quite a lovely, wonderful saint. Um, so I do encourage you to ask for intercession. I found her prayers very useful uh, in preparing this talk. So just to get things started, basically I'm going to tell her story. So real quick, this is a painting that was commissioned for the 800th Jubilee of the, uh, the founding of the Dominicans. We were founded in 1216, so we got to celebrate 800 years in 2016. Um, and this, this painting was commissioned um, by, uh, by our province, depicting various Dominican saints and blesseds. Uh, our saint today, not blessed, but Saint Margaret of Castello is right here. <clears throat> Let's begin with her important, some important dates. She was born in 1287, so close to 100 years after St. Dominic, and died in 1320. She was beatified um, about 300 years after her death, and she was canonized just this past year, um, on April 24th, um, by a process known as equipollent canonization, which I will bring up uh, at the end of my presentation. <clears throat> So Margaret of Castello was born uh, in the Middle Ages in central Italy in a town called Metola, which is in the center of the Italian peninsula. It was part of the Papal States at the time. 
she was born, sometimes she's known as Margaret of Metola, because that's where she was born, but more commonly referred to her as Margaret of Castello. Castello is the city where she spent most of her adult life and where she died. Margaret was born to uh, nobility. Her parents were very important in the city of Metola. Her father, Paricio, was basically the captain of the city guard. He was in charge of the military defense of the city of Metola. Um, his wife, Emilia, uh, was also of noble lineage. Margaret came from a noble family. Her father, Paricio, was a distinguished soldier. He was uh, a fantastic leader, captain of men, but as we will find out, he didn't have too many other virtues, and neither did his wife. Um, she was not born to good parents. Her father, basically to put it bluntly, was a cruel man. What made him an effective soldier did not make him an effective husband and father, as Margaret quickly uh, and sorrowfully found out over the course of her life. Her mother was not particularly cruel, she was more just weak-willed, uh, neither a good mother, just as Parisi was not a good father. When Amelia uh, conceived, uh, and they were expecting the child, uh, Parisio, Margaret's father, had great plans for the son he was going to have. He was an ambitious man, uh, making his way in the world and establishing his name and his lineage, and he was looking forward to having a big strapping son to whom he could pass on uh, his military leadership, um, his leadership of the city, and basically his importance. When Margaret was born, her parents were disappointed, uh, to put it lightly. First, because she was a girl. That was not at all part of her father's plans. They were furthermore disappointed because uh, in, her eye, in their eyes, she was a useless child. She was born with numerous disabilities. Um, she was, uh, she had numerous ailments. She was basically a dwarf. She suffered from dwarfism. She was maybe about four feet tall. Uh, this was compounded by the fact that she suffered from a curvature of the spine. She was basically a hunchback. Um, and she was a cripple. One of her legs was several inches shorter than the other. In short, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of her parents, Margaret was a useless child. And all of this was compounded by the fact that her eyes, Margaret's eyes were also useless. She was blind. So you can imagine for her parents to be given this, this child after all the plans that her father uh, had made for his son and the disappointment. And yet, unfortunately, you would hope that this disappointment in parents would have turned into compassion and charity. But the, the opposite was the case. Basically, her parents did their best to hide her away from the world and make sure that nobody had any idea that they even had a daughter. They went so far as to uh, initially refuse to have her baptized. You might wonder, how could they be so cruel as to not even give their child baptism? Well, the reason they wouldn't baptize her was because and in that day, in that city, all baptisms were performed in the cathedral, and that would be far too public for her parents' liking. And so they refused for a while, and eventually the castle chaplain convinced Emilia, the mother, that the child had to be baptized, and she convinced Parisio that the child had to be baptized. And the way they went about it was basically they, they gave Margaret, uh, before she had been christened, they gave the child to a trustworthy maid who would bring Margaret in as discreet a manner as possible, get her baptized, and get her back to the castle. 
that sets the tone for what her parents' priorities were in regard to this poor, innocent child. Margaret began to grow in the castle, and it became very quickly apparent that even though she suffered from numerous physical ailments, she suffered no ailments of the mind and no ailments of the spirit. She was, to anyone who paid attention, incredibly intelligent. She was very bright. She was very cheery. She was very loving. She went all around the castle. She memorized the, she memorized the halls. She memorized the people. She memorized people's names as fast as possible. When she was only five or six years old, she learned the names of everybody in the castle and was just a gentle, kind, loving child. This kind disposition got her in trouble because normally, uh, what happened, so at the age of six, something happened. Normally when visitors would come to the castle, uh, Parisio and Emilia would make sure that Margaret was well out of sight and never spoken of. They were desperate that word of Margaret and this child that they had would never reach the public eye or the public ear. One of the times when there were visitors, the nursemaid lost track of Margaret. And Margaret, as was her normal kind disposition, came up to this visitor, a noble woman, and started talking to her. And the woman was shocked to see this girl that, you know, obviously was very well dressed and seemed to be part of the nobility, and yet she had never heard of it. And she asked the child's name. Just at that moment, the nursemaid returned and whisked the child away before she could tell her, my name is Margaret, I'm the daughter of Caricio and Emilio. This was, in the eyes of her parents, a disaster, or a near disaster. And in, uh, consistent with their conduct up to that point, they decided they had to do something about this. So at the age of six, and what I'm going to say will probably sound unbelievable, but it's true. At the age of six, Paricio, her father, decided it was time to permanently solve the problem of Margaret and put her away from civilization. And he basically found a church in the middle of the woods, near the castle, but far away from anybody else. And he knew that Margaret seemed to enjoy mass. She seemed to enjoy you know, religious topics. She seemed to get along well with the chaplain. The chaplain was one of the few who took care of her. And so Paricio, the solution he came up with was, we will let Margaret live at the church. And so he had a little room built onto the church in the middle of the woods, away from, in the middle of nowhere. And that's where he put Margaret, where he intended to leave Margaret to the end of her days. He walled it up. There was just a window so she could look into the church and participate in Mass and receive the sacraments that way. And there was a little window by which she could receive food and she could speak with the chaplain and uh, receive training in the faith. And that was her parents' solution to what to do with Margaret. Obviously, this would have been a very traumatic experience for a child so young. And yet, by the grace of God, Margaret turned this into a period of basically the beginning of her lifelong love of Christ. Instead of turning in bitterness, she turned everything into love. She loved the priest who took care of her. She loved the friends that she could no longer see. She loved her parents. She never turned bitter, and this was just the start. Basically, right at the very beginning, you can see how Margaret's disposition would remain and grow for the rest of her life. During this time, Margaret simply grew in charity. She even grew in a life of penance. She, who had already suffered so much, she decided 
it was in this moment that she came to know the one who would eventually become her bridegroom. Spoiler alert. Uh, and she united all of her sufferings to Christ, who was himself rejected by man. <clears throat> she uh, grew in knowledge of the faith. The chaplain came and trained her, taught her to pray, taught her the Psalms, and Margaret ate it all up and turned that into a soul intensely filled with charity. She ended up being there. Her parents intended to leave her and just make that her existence. Divine Providence intervened. After 13 years of this isolation, yes, it sounds incredible, but it's true. After 13 years of this isolation, something happened. A war broke out in medieval Italy. I know, it's a big shock. There was war in the area, and Parisio had to respond to this, and so he, so he knew that he had to get his wife away from the castle to someplace safe. And Emilia insisted that she take Margaret along, and of course Parisio didn't want that to do, but she convinced him, we have to get Margaret to a place of safety. So Margaret was able to leave that room after 13 years. She was about 19 or 20. They took Margaret away, her father, the good soldier that he was, dealt with the enemy, uh, and peace returned. But her parents were still left with the problem of what do we do with Margaret? It was shortly after this that a possible solution presented itself. In the nearby city of Castello, there was a Franciscan friar named Giacomo who had been basically a wonder worker in his day. He, he performed miracles, and he, he, had, he was... Uh, he had passed away, and there was his tomb in that city, at which miracles continued to happen. And Parisio and Emilia thought they found a solution to their problem. They decided they would take Margaret to Castello, and they probably wouldn't pray, but they would seek a miracle. They knew that Margaret would seek a miracle. Apologies for the technical difficulties. I'm a Dominican, so technical things are not always my forte. So her parents made the, the several-day journey from Metola to Castello, seeking a miracle to fix their daughter. Margaret was also seeking something there. She was seeking simply God's will the entire time. They told her, Margaret, you have to pray for this miracle. And she agreed to pray for the miracle if it was in keeping with God's will. That was her prayer. Lord, I seek this insofar as it is your will. The reliance on divine providence that had grown during her time in that cell in the middle of the woods was never going to leave her, especially not at this crucial time. So they came to Castello uh, in secret, of course, because they wanted to continue making sure that nobody knew that Margaret was their daughter. And they came to the church where the Franciscan's tomb was. And Parisio and Emilia brought Margaret in the morning to there and said, all right, Margaret, time to pray for the miracle, and God will grant it to you because he loves you and you love him. And Margaret truly did love God, and he did truly love her. And so she prayed for the miracle. Her parents, not being religious, then went out into the city to, to spend the day away from the church. That evening, they came back to the church to find Margaret, to find Margaret newly cured, but, surprise, surprise, in God's divine providence, Margaret was not cured. 
in the eyes of her parents, their hopes were completely crushed. They were completely, utterly disappointed. And this was a turning point. Right? Up to that point, her parents had at least taken care of her, taken care of her in a distant way. But in this, uh, unfortunately, her parents' true disposition showed itself. They saw Margaret. Obviously, she couldn't see them. They turned around, walked out of the church, and left her. And they went back to the inn, gathered their servants, gathered their horses, and left the city and completely abandoned her. Again, it sounds shocking, but it's true. Margaret, of course, didn't realize this at the time. She was still waiting in the church, praying. Um, and her parents didn't come that evening. And she stayed in the church until closing time. And when it was time for the church to be closed, she just waited out on the front step. And she waited and waited and, know, and knew that her parents would come. But of course, they didn't come. At that point, you can realize the courage of Margaret. I mean, Margaret was very intelligent, as I said. She knew her way around familiar places, but obviously she was in a place where she, it was utterly unfamiliar to her. She was lost all alone, not entirely all alone, because of her clinging to Christ, who, again, spoiler alert, would become her bride. The next morning, Margaret, with the help of beggars, uh, was able to find the inn where her parents were. She could, she could recreate the path. She knew that it was close to the city gate, and they were able to find the inn. Obviously, she didn't know the name of it. She had to figure it out. She found the innkeeper who knew who she was, who had an idea of who she was, but definitely knew who her parents were. And she was given the news that her parents had left the day before in a hurry. And this obviously was another major turning point in Margaret's life. Margaret had been completely abandoned by her parents. But, again, by God's grace, this did not turn her to despair. Instead, it turned her simply to further charity, to further reliance on God. Again, she harbored no bitterness towards her parents, no ill will. She, look, she looked at herself, metaphorically speaking, of course. She looked at herself and realized, well, I'm 19. I can't remember if she was 19 or 20. She was about that age. My parents had taken care of me up to now, and it's time for me to take care of myself. And so she became one of the beggars of the city, one of the homeless of the city. And they took her in. They saw this sweet, wonderful, loving, intelligent child, and they took care of her. She, who had been raised, albeit poorly, by nobility, became one with the poor of the city. Margaret basically became a staple of the city of Castello, um, simply because of who she was, simply because of her obvious radiating charity. Word about her quickly spread around. This, this child who was obviously of nobility, you could tell by her clothes. What happened was basically there was a, a progression along society. First she was taken care of by the beggars. Um, and she joined the homeless, and she made her, her living that way. But then the poor began to hear about her. Have you heard about little Margarita? She's so sweet. She's so wonderful. Margarita began to be taken in by no longer the homeless, but the poor of the city. Now, none of them could take care of her for a long, uh, a long period at one time, so basically she went from house to house among the poor of the city, uh, and they took care of her one by one. And it was remarkable, or perhaps unremarkable, given Margaret. It was remarkable that the people who took her in, you could tell the change 
in every house as they went by. Not that all the problems ceased, of course not, but people who had strife in their house found some peace. People who had dislike or hatred in the house suddenly found charity and love. Margaret, who had impacted those in her small circle, began to impact a wider and wider circle in the city. As I said, basically, Margaret became a staple of Costello. Pretty soon, everybody knew little Margaret. Everybody wanted to talk to her, wanted to converse with her. Uh, <clears throat> at this point, obviously, Margaret had, she was completely in love with Christ. Right? He was the rock in her life, and she wanted to do something to make it more formal. There was a convent of nuns. Um, we don't know what order they belonged to. Uh, the medieval biographers, um, as you will see, uh, were discreet about not saying what convent of nuns. You'll, you'll understand why in a moment. But Margaret was obviously yearning for something like, like a, a convent, a place where she could completely live with Christ, dedicate herself completely to him, and to a life of charity. And so the convent of nuns was finally convinced to take her in, because obviously they worried that she would be a burden on the, on the community, that she wouldn't know how to take care of herself, that she wouldn't be able to live the rule. Ironically, uh, it was the opposite that was the case. Margaret ended up living the rule too well. She was very happy. She was there for some months, uh, maybe, maybe even a year. She was there, fitting in, and then not fitting in. Because Margaret uh, had very high standards for what religious life should be. And the nuns of the convent were, to put it bluntly, lax. They had stagnated in their community, and they started to loosen up their rules. And Margaret, being as gentle and innocent, and yet as rigid in, that, in the good sense of that term as she was, couldn't understand the dispensations they gave to themselves. Just from little things like, so monastic practice is silence. That was not the case at all in this convent. They, uh, the nuns would receive very expensive gifts from their friends, and they would receive people uh, coming and going. Basically, all these things that their rule held them to, they dispensed with. And Margaret couldn't understand that. And she tried to live the rule in its, in its entirety. The nuns eventually tried to change her, tried to get her to, well, basically to stop being Margaret. And the fit just didn't work. The nuns were disappointed in her. And you, would like, and you might say that Margaret was disappointed in the nuns, but she wasn't. She had too much charity. She had too much trust in God's providence to be disappointed. And eventually, the nuns expelled her from the convent. Once again, she was given the opportunity to despair. And once again, she didn't. She loved the nuns for the time that they had taken care of her and decided that once again, it was, it was her responsibility to take care of herself. <clears throat> Finally, in God's providence, she found a lasting home. It was during this time, oh, I should mention one other, one other cross that she had to bear. She was expelled from a convent. Now, obviously, the people of the city loved her, but to have someone expelled from a convent made them wonder, is Margaret perhaps not so holy as we thought? And so she had to deal with that as well. But of course, she dealt with it in the grace and the peace and the charity that she had lived all of her life up to that point. It was shortly after this that God sent her the consolation, the grace of finding a lasting home. She joined 
a group called the Montalate in that city. They were basically the, they were called the Order of Penance of St. Dominic. They were basically the forerunners of what are now third order regular sisters, the natural sisters of St. Dominic, the Ann Arbor Dominican sisters. Basically, these were their forerunners. They were women who were inspired by the ideals of St. Dominic and wanted to live a Dominican life. Uh, but the Montalate were uh, marked by, normally they were widows. They had lived a full life, their husbands were deceased, and they wanted to live a more religious life, but still live in their homes, but still engage in acts of charity. Those were the Montalate. And so at first, because of this, normally they were widows, uh, there was, there was some, uh, some obstacles to Margaret joining them. She was young, she was unmarried. It took some convincing, but eventually the Montalate were convinced. The other reason why Margaret wanted to join the Montalate uh, was because she loved the Church of the Dominicans in, in Castello, the Chiesa del Carità, the Church of Charity. The Montalate sisters were named that because they wore a Dominican habit, which was a white tunic with a leather belt. They didn't have a scapular, instead they had a white veil, and they had basically a long black cape over everything, which is called a mantle. And so they were mantled, mantalata. And it was then that Margaret found her lasting peace, her lasting home. She joined them and was able to live fully the life of charity and the life of prayer that she had been living on her own all of her life up to that point. Uh, she was taken in, as I mentioned, normally the mantalate didn't live in community. They lived in their own homes, uh, but were uh, joined to the community through prayer, through acts of charity. So Margaret was basically adopted by uh, some wealthy families in the city, and she was able to live the life of a Dominican sister. And of course, there was the full flowering of how she had already been living her life up to that point. You can see the full flowering. There are, there are many stories. Uh, I can only dwell on a few. She sank herself into works of charity, caring for the homeless, caring for prisoners. She would go and visit prisoners, which, as today, but especially in that day and age, was incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. You can only think simply of the disease that would have been present in that. And Margaret went and visited the prisoners. Margaret cared for the homeless. Margaret uh, founded a school for children where she would, among other things, teach the children the Psalms, which, of course, she had entirely memorized. Other gifts that she had been given down through her life reached their flowering. Her prayer, uh, there are stories told about her prayer, that she would enter into moments of ecstasy, moments of ecstasy when she would rise off the ground in prayer. Um, her spiritual director, her confessor, who was a Dominican friar, so I, I think he's trustworthy in reporting this, um, reported that it was especially during this time that Margaret started to receive mystical experiences at, at Mass that from the time of the consecration to the time of communion, she beheld Christ. What that means in particular, I, I, it's, hard for, it's hard for me to, to, to fill it out, but she was given the mystical experience at Mass of beholding Christ, which of course is simply the flowering of the life of devotion that she'd been living up to that point, from the time when she was a child, to an adolescent, to a young woman. There were various miracles associated with this time. Unfortunately, we don't have many of them uh, because the medieval biography, biographer basically says there were tons of other miracles. 
and because everybody already knows them, we don't have to write them down. So unfortunately, we only have a few uh, come down to us. Um, for instance, there was the story of the house where she was living. You know, this family had taken her in. The house where she was living had caught on fire, which of course in that day and age was a disaster because the buildings were wood, the, the town had so much wood, it could have been terrible. Um, and so whenever a fire would, uh, whenever a fire broke out, the town alarm would spread the news and every able-bodied man had to rush to the scene and they had to douse the fire together. But this fire was getting out of control. Uh, the family was outside uh, and the, the, the men were saying, they you sure there's nobody else in the house? And the mother of the house realized that Margaret was still inside. So she went, she rushed in. Um, the, the, our, the fireman didn't want her to do that, but she did it anyway. And said, Margaret, come out. And Margaret appeared at the top of the stairs, completely tranquil, completely peaceful, and said, don't worry. She took off her mantle, tossed it to the mother, and said, toss this into the flames. And she did, and the fire dispersed completely. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have too many other miracles. Um, so I like to hold on to whichever ones we do have. So basically, at the, end of, at the end of her life, Margaret continued living as she had, but in a way that became apparent to everyone how she had been living already on her own. Um, she died young at the age of 33, having spent herself completely and entirely in love of her bridegroom. Her life had been tumultuous. And uh, it was only fitting that her funeral was tumultuous as well. What happened was basically, so normally as a Montalata, she would have been buried in the cloister uh, of the Dominican church, uh, and so away from where people could come and visit her. Uh, and the townspeople wanted none of that. So during her funeral procession, basically what happened, yeah, it's medieval times, uh, there became a standoff between uh, the townspeople and the Dominicans. Uh, because the people wanted her buried in the, in the parish church where everybody could come see her because they knew and recognized that she was a saint. Um, and and the, the, the Dominican who was leading the funeral, of course, very sensibly, was saying, well, hang on, there's a process for canonization. Let's make sure, let's, let's, not, let's not go too crazy at the moment. Um, things were getting very tense. Divine providence intervened. And uh, two parents brought a little girl who was, like Margaret, crippled. Uh, disabled. They brought her right up to Margaret's uh, uh, to Margaret's body. And as the story goes, Margaret's hand reached out and touched the girl, and she was completely healed. And that was taken as a sign that, yes, we're sure that Margaret is a saint. And so she was buried in the, in the parish church of Castello. After Margaret died, her uh, cultus devotion to her grew and spread throughout the region. Um, it was somewhat cut short, several, uh, about a 150, 200 years later because of the Black Death. In the case of that, Margaret, along with so many other figures that unfortunately we don't know about, her, her fame was curtailed. Nevertheless, afterwards, uh, Margaret was beatified in 1609. These are just some other images. I didn't do a good job of like moving the slideshow along. These are just images of Margaret. About 300 years after Margaret's death, she was beatified. Um, and then uh, just, as I said, just this year, she was canonized by Pope Francis on April 24th. Now, you might be wondering why, why after all these many years, or after these centuries, moving from beatification to canonization, 
And uh, I spoke with a Dominican friar of our province who has a great devotion. Um, and he, he sees in it um, the connection to the pro-life movement today, especially, not just the pro-life movement, but, but others as well, especially when you consider um, you know, the desire to take care of the disabled, the marginalized. And he sees Margaret's canonization as sort of bringing that to the fore and her being a perfect patron for this time. Um, but that will start getting into the lessons of Margaret for today, uh, which will be the purview of Brother Christopher. So I'll end my section here. Thank you, Brother John Henry. Um, so yeah, just a few sort of brief reflections on Margaret, right? Um, and I'll show you the other photos while we're here, right? I guess that's the only two. There we go. Um, so, right, Margaret for today. Uh, as Brother John Henry mentioned, um, she's a pro-life saint. Um, right, you think about um, her parents weren't very devout. Um, they, they had, as nobility, they had sort of a chaplain in the castle. Um, but you can imagine that today, right, the sort of loose affiliation that people like her parents might have had with the faith, um, maybe they wouldn't really practicing at all. Maybe they wouldn't really bat an eye at something like an abortion, for instance, right? And today we would know, right? The doctors, you know, she, um, Amelia would have gone in for a prenatal, you know, checkup, and they would have known before her birth that Margaret was going to be, you know, horribly deformed, right, and, and uh, disabled, right? So that might have even been recommended depending on the doctor, you know. Um, furthermore, right, Margaret, not just a patron for those who are going to be born with disabilities, but those who are born with disabilities, right? Um, I just watched a little clip from, uh, you think you can find it on YouTube, but sort of a low-budget film that was made about Margaret's life. Um, and the, the things that her parents, I mean, it's a little, you know, overdramatic, the acting, uh, a little bit cheesy, but like the things that they're saying, like, Oh my gosh, a girl, oh, not a girl. Oh, she's, you know, she's deformed. She's so ugly, someone says, right? So, you know, maybe not pleasant to look at, right? And then she's unwanted, dramatically unwanted. We can think of, you know, children who, you know, now abortion is so common, children who are born, but then after being born are unwanted, um, who are, you know, not taken care of. Um, who are rejected by their family, who, like Margaret, end up homeless on the street, right? We don't know the story of the homeless whom we may see, right? But their story might not be so different from Margaret's story, right? So she's, she's a saint for our times. For those reasons, she's also um, a quintessential Dominican saint. Right, uh, so much of her early life, especially during that time where she was living in the, the little cell, the little room attached to the church in the woods, right, is given to contemplation. And when she joins the monastery, again, she's looking for contemplation, right? Um, but God calls her not only to a contemplative life, but also to an active life. We can think of other third order Dominican women saints where this is true, right? Catherine of Siena, you know, the beginning of her sort of mystical, her religious vocation, she wants to spend all of her time in her room, in the family home. Um, but then, right, um, the Lord actually appears to her and says, 
you have to go out. She says, I want to spend time with you. <laughs> he says, no, you won't be farther from me because it's I who am sending you out, right? And I'll be with you, right, as you serve me um, in the poor, right? Uh, and similarly, right, um, St. Rose of Lima, again, another Dominican third order woman saint who wants to spend a life in deep contemplation, but whom the Lord also calls to, uh, so they have an active life as well. Um, Brother James um, drew a distinction, right, last week. I don't know if you're all here. Um, when we think of the saints, things to imitate versus things to admire, right? So things to ad admire um, in St. Margaret um, might be just the, the size, in a certain respect, of the cross that she was given to carry, right? The, the, the immense weight of it, right? Um, to my knowledge, none of us here were, were born crippled, right? Um, there are some procedures now where, you know, they can do something to help with that. But to my knowledge, none of us were born crippled. Um, we're, we're all able to see, right? Um, and she had immense difficulties beyond this. We may also not be called, right, um, to live among the poor and to serve those who, frankly, right, um, in Margaret's case, the people that she was serving were often better off than she was, right? Um, but she saw their need and, and reached out with her heart. But we may not be called to be a third-order Dominican. Maybe we are. Some of us are called to be right, in the first order, as it were. Um, but right, there's much that we can still imitate as well, right, in addition to admi admiring. She was able to accept all of her many sufferings and trials, right, because of her deep prayer um, and because of her desire to be with Christ. Um, in one recounting of the story of her life, she even, as a little six-year-old, right, she's being put into, you know, away from her family in this little cell on the side of the church, and the priest, you know, chaplain comes and visits her and is expecting her to be just distraught, just totally overwhelmed. Um, and what he finds instead, you know, it seems that Margaret, you know, was perhaps had been crying at some stage, but, but now she's not at all, right, perturbed. Um, and she says, Father, I understand why I've been sent here. It's so that I can be close to our suffering Jesus, right? She's now, like, it's, it's not that it's not hard for her, but she's now excited to embrace this difficulty because she sees it as an opportunity to grow close to Jesus. Right, and with our much, much smaller sufferings, right, we can take advantage of that same opportunity. Right, the, the inconveniences, the trials, um, the difficulties in our lives. Right, we can ask Margaret to help us. Right, um, to be able to embrace those moments, um, which are very often, like in her case, outside of our control. Right, um, likewise, her ability to forgive. Right? Margaret was able to forgive, again, because of her deep life of prayer and her closeness to our Lord. Right? Um, likewise, she can hold others to their vocation simply by her example. Right? It doesn't appear that she was scolding the nuns, but sort of the, the nuns felt the pressure of Margaret's example. Right? Uh, it made them uncomfortable, and eventually, right, okay, they, they got rid of her. But, again, by the example of our living a life of quiet holiness, right? We can call those around us to live their vocation more deeply as well. And again, all of this is because of Margaret's 
deep, deep life of, of prayer and her dependence on the Lord. So, I don't know, I think sometimes we might like to think that we're already very patient and loving people. Um, and, you know, maybe we are. Maybe, maybe, you know, we can think of times like, well, that really was making me angry. But I, you know, just sort of tried to stay calm. You know, I, I let it go. Um, however, to live an entire life out of patience like that is not possible on our own human resources. Eventually, right, everyone has a breaking point, as it were, right? Naturally, it's beyond our power. It's only by relying on Jesus, right, um, and his love and his grace and asking for those gifts that we'll actually have sufficient resources to bear up under all, even the little crosses in our lives. And Margaret is someone who we can ask for her intercession as well. We can ask, we befriend Margaret, right? The saints aren't just, you know, sort of off distant on a pedestal or something. We're meant to befriend them. Uh, and they're anxious to befriend us uh, and to help us, right, to carry those little crosses. Finally, um, I think it is significant. I already mentioned um, Margaret's forgiveness, but I I think more to the point, or just to put a finer point on that, we can very easily look at the wretched behavior of Margaret's parents, right? And recognize that Margaret was a victim, right? Primarily a victim of, of neglect. It's not clear that there was, there's no suggestion that there was any active abuse on the part of her parents, but just gross, you know, just incredible neglect right, for their daughter, right? And, and also, we might say a victim of circumstance, right? She's, she's born with these, you know, these disabilities. And there is often a temptation, I think, um, maybe in Margaret's day, but certainly in our own day, right, when we are in a situation where we are in a big or even in a small way a victim, right, that we can feel somewhat entitled to a little bitterness, Say, I've been wronged, right? Which may be true, right? Which may well be true. Um, but Margaret is a beautiful example of someone who is not merely a victim, right? Who rises above those incredibly negative circumstances and the experience of being wronged, right? Grievously wronged by her parents, by the nuns, right? She was actually living the vocation that they were presumably all there to pursue, right? Um, but she rose above that by embracing those circumstances as an opportunity to grow closer to our Lord. And again, that does not mean that it didn't cause her pain. I think sometimes we think of, you know, and, you know maybe we think of St. Lawrence, you know, he's being martyred and he's, you know, he's being grilled. I don't know if you know about St. Lawrence, but he, they, they martyr him by grilling him in ancient Rome. You know, and he, he's there for a little while. He says, turn me over, I'm done on this side, right, you know. Sort of making a humorous joke, and we might think, we'll just turn it off now. Um, we might think that because he's joking, that he doesn't feel any pain, and that's not the case, right? Closest to our Lord doesn't make us insensitive to pain, um, but it makes us able to sense our Lord's closeness. And so, although the circumstances of her life certainly caused her tremendous pain and grief. That was never what was uppermost in her mind. 
who was uppermost in her mind, was her closest to Jesus. And so, right, in closing, we can recognize that we won't, God willing, have to bear the kinds of crosses that Margaret carried, but with her help, right, specifically, really, with her help, turning to her as a friend and asking for her intercession and her friendly support, right, um, we can bear the little crosses that we are given and the big crosses that we are given, right? Um, so, right, we can really close, as Brother John Henry was alluding, by saying that it really is providential that, you know, okay, this saint who lived in, you know, the, the 14th century, who died in 1320, right, who's beatified 300 years later, but that's still, you know, over 400 years ago, or just about 400 years ago now, why should she be canonized in 2021? Because she's exactly the kind of saint that we need. Always. But maybe especially today as we seek to embrace the dignity of every human life when it's so grievously under attack. Thanks. Are we taking questions? We can take questions. If there are questions. Who were some of the first saints who were um, influenced by her? Um, who, who were moved by her? I think you were mentioning to me earlier, Brother John Henry, that uh, St. Robert Bellarmine might have been. I, I especially enjoy it. Yes, I especially enjoy this fact. Um, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, um, one of the great um, Catholic Reformation figures in the 1600s, um, he was actually responsible for putting together the dossier, the information about Margaret of Castello from medieval biographers, uh, to pave the way for her beatification. Um, and so I would imagine he was greatly influenced by her. Um, regarding specific other individuals, as I said, her, her devotion to her grew in the, the hundreds of years after her. Unfortunately, she lived right before the, she lived before the Black Death, and the amount of information that was wiped out from that really deprives of, us of a lot of sources. I mean, it's great that we, we have as much information as we do, um, but that also sort of slows things down in terms of getting her well-known. Um, just speaking in, in modern times, I mean, you know, the, um, the, the friar of our province I alluded to earlier, he does a lot of work in healthcare, um, and he said that there's, he's seen a very strong, growing appreciation of Margaret's intercession, especially in healthcare, what with, you know, like the fight against euthanasia, let alone the fight against abortion, and care for the disabled, care for the marginalized. Um, so those, those are only a few of the, the examples that I can specifically point to. St. Robert Bellarmine was a Jesuit, but we won't hold it against him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I remember in some of my reading, I, I um, was recounted that her cult, as we call it, right, we're not, we're not, uh, not the occult, um, but her de devotion to her, we'll say, um, was not widespread. So it was fairly localized uh, in that part of Italy, um, in the area that was formerly part of the Papal States. Um, and then, right, it was in the Dominican order, right? So Dominicans had a devotion to her. So you might think of, you know, more recent... Dominican saints, right? Holy Dominicans, whom we all may have known in our lives, they would have known who she was. And it's now, right, that by the grace of God, 
sort of opening the treasure chest um, of you know this, this beautiful life in the Dominican order and then sharing her with the world. Father Hyacinth. Oh. Yeah, you need this. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, well, first of all, great job. Father John Henry is a very good storyteller. Great job and, and great reflections, Brother Christopher. Um, one thing I want to mention is that we have um, two shrines uh, in our two of our churches um, in our province. So, and actually, the pictures here were from those two different shrines. So, the one where the, the wooden statue, I believe that's the one, that's the one in Lula, wasn't it, Father Dominic? Yes, with all those red candles. And then the other one that showed kind of Christmas de uh, decorations around it, that's at St. Patrick's in Columbus. So, I, I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Of course, there would be the shrine uh, where her body is in Italy, but then I'm not sure how many other shrines of her there are around the world. But it's kind of unique that we have two shrines in our in our province, and I think that's one way that she's been better known. Uh, just a couple of comments, and I'll, I'll give it back to you. But one thing I I remember is I was mentioning to Kathy beforehand that. Uh, the book on um, that Bonniewell wrote, this one, kind of a distinctive cover. Um, I remember, I remember celebrating the funeral of a woman, who that was her absolute favorite book, and it just so moved her that she just read it over and over and over again. And I only learned this, you know, from her daughter after she passed, you know, when talking about the, this woman. I was kind of really struck by that. Um, so that's just kind of a little story. Um, so I, that's a, it's a great book to read. Um, and the last point is I think, uh, you know, you were talking about persons with disabilities. And I think especially that in our day and age, with the culture of life, we tend to value people according to how smart they are, how much money they make, how productive they are, and so on. And we forget that those things are valuable, but there's an underlying inherent dignity that all of us have that's not dependent on how productive we are, how smart we are, how attractive we are, how popular we are, how much money we make, and so on. And I think persons with disabilities really show us that. Like anybody who has a, you know, a relative, somebody with um, you know, a, a serious disability, it's, it's amazing how God works through that. And they really can bring out the best in people. And you learn to love. You learn to. It sort of. They teach you how to love. They teach you how to love people, not for what they you get. They you get out of them, but love them in their inherent dignity. So I think just persons with disabilities in general teach us about really highlight that inherent dignity that we all have, and especially Saint Margaret of Castello. And I think that's really a powerful message. So those are just a few kind of scattered. Reflections. Yeah, just a, just a comment on the, the question of shrines. Um, so yes, we have a shrine at our, our church in Louisville, um, and we have the shrine at our church in Columbus, the other St. Patrick's of our province, St. Patrick's in Columbus, Ohio, uh, which is a very active shrine. So if you're, um, I, I think they have a, a fairly active website, excuse me. Um, if you're looking for more information on St. Margaret, for more information on St. Margaret, absolutely this work by, um, Father William Bonnewell, uh, Dominican, uh, is, is really good. Um, 
one comment about um, her shrine in Italy. So Margaret is buried in the town of Castello in Italy um, in the School of the Blind, uh, as, I, as I understand. Um, but to Father's point about um, the, the poor and the disabled, absolutely. Uh, I think that you know, the thing we have to keep in mind all the time is so often you know, when we see someone um, poor off, we tend to think only about what we can give to them. Um, but the more you look at them and the more you converse with them, the more you realize how much they can give to you. Um, I, uh, just, as, just as a personal experience of this, when I was in college, um, I, I did basically a mission trip where I, uh, I went over to Italy to work with an Italian religious order um, to volunteer with, uh, it was a, a daycare center for people with, were men with physical and mental disabilities. So many of these men had Down syndrome, so many of them had autism, um, and I was there to serve them. Uh, but I was in a, a strange country, I did not speak the language, I was trying to learn Italian, uh, and they became my first teachers. Um, you know, and, uh, and that, was, that was a really incredible experience, because I was going over there, you know, young American college student ready to, to serve people and, and take care of them. And the roles were completely reversed. Um, and I, I think back on that very I thought back on that very frequently with Margaret. You think of Margaret's situation. You know, she had a variety of gifts as well as a variety of, of ailments. Um, and she who came from a noble family, the first people who took her in and actually cared for her were the poor of the city of Castello. Um, and that, that's something that's really worth pondering, I think. Okay, did you also have a question? Three questions. Did she have any siblings? What did she die of? And it, did her parents ever recognize her worth? I can answer at least two of those. Um, none of the biographies um, mention any siblings, um, whether that means that... Um, uh, Policio and Amelia died childless, unclear. Maybe they had other children, but she, can't, uh, Margaret rather, might never have known that, given that they abandoned her. And your, to answer, in answer to your third question, they did not ever. There is no sort of hallmark reconciliation. You know, there's, there's no happy ending, seemingly, uh, for her parents. Did they perhaps outlive her and, and later come to repent? Maybe, but we don't know. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Uh, in, in my research, it seems that it was actually hard to track down who her parents were for a while because of the lengths they went to to, to disassociate themselves with her. Um, and so, yeah, it, it doesn't seem that there was any apparent um, reconciliation. Of course, Margaret and her heart uh, had always forgiven them and loved them. And so we entrust Parisio and Amelia to, to God's grace and mercy as she already has. Margaret already has done. Um, regarding her death, um, she died very young, uh, as I mentioned, at the age of 33. Uh, none, of the, none of the works I looked at specified her, her, the reason for her death, but of course, given the numerous physical disabilities she had, she would have certainly been, um, uh, been in poor health for a long time. One thing um, that I think was pretty apparent, you know, you look at certain saints, like especially Dominic and Francis, who were very hard on themselves and completely spent themselves. You think of Thomas Aquinas completely spending themselves. Margaret lived a very penitential life on top of everything she already had. 
And so my guess is that she poured herself out uh, in addition to, to the, the ailments she already had. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you everyone for coming. <laughs>